0: Well, welcome back to our study of Ecclesiastes. I hope you've been, uh, <coughs> I hope you've uh, <coughs> listened to all of the uh, lessons, <coughs> and it will um, put you in good stead if you do. I think you'll benefit from them, especially if you do them in order, <coughs> naturally. Well, last time, we um, were looking at the seventh The seventh um, one of the teachers, excuse me, the teachers' uh, ten pieces of advice. And number seven was God is not defined by our circumstances. And just as a quick reminder, um, we found a couple of significant things under that heading, which of course was verses uh, uh, chapter nine, verses one through six. We found that the teacher was telling us that uh, circumstances give us, excuse me, give us an opportunity to practice truth, but circumstances should not be uh, considered viable for def- defining truth, and that's a very important uh, distinction. Another very um, significant thing that we found in that lesson was that uh, we found that chapter 9, the first half of chapter 9 in Ecclesiastes, does present us with a pretty good outline of the gospel. And probably the best that we'll get in Ecclesiastes, although um, later on we will uh, focus on the Romans 8 uh, paradigm that happens uh, with Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> but until then, this is probably the best um, jumping-off point for the gospel that, the, that can be found in Ecclesiastes. There are, by the way, <clears throat> I think I mentioned, uh, 10 uh, traditional... Uh, focus points for the gospel in Ecclesiastes, uh, most of which have been actually um, exercised by someone at some time, but there are ten, and um, this one in chapter nine, uh, verses one through six, is uh, one of them. And again, just an extremely brief reminder: uh, we see that in the words in the words sacrifice in verse two which occur twice, the word insanity in verse 3, the notion of uh, having a a limited opportunity to choose, which is described in uh, 4, 5, and 6, and lastly, the notion of being approved by God in verse 7, and if you look at those things, they match up really well with John 16 verse 8. John 16:8, in which the Lord, our Lord Himself, described the Holy Spirit as convicting men of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. And those three things are, in fact, in this uh, portion of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> so the next thing up is uh, advice number eight. And that is Cultivate Contentment. We're going to call that Cultivate Contentment. And it's just a few verses. Verses uh, 7 through 12 of chapter 9. So Let's go ahead and read those. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you, under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. <clears throat> wow, once again, it sure sounds like the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is being negative, is uh, you know putting us on a bummer. And as you know from previous lessons, this is just not so. It is, it is a tendency, as one reads Ecclesiastes, that, that things look this way. But that's not really the way things are. And if you've been following along, you know that we have made that case over and over, that if you keep it, everything in context and you, and you recognize the flow of the passage, you'll see that this is not indeed uh, negative. It's just the mysteriousness of Ecclesiastes that makes this happen. The wording, the nuances, the word pictures, the symbolism, the hyperbole, uh, all of that together really uh, makes you have to dig in and just understand the context, the passage as a whole. So let's let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 7, chapter 9. He says, go, then. The word then is actually uh, in italics in most uh, uh, older versions, showing that it actually isn't represented by a word. <clears throat> so he's actually saying, go. He's saying, go. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. What does this sound like? <clears throat> what does that sound like? It sounds like the thing that he began to say, and is repeatedly saying, ever since chapter 2, verse 24. You may recall that. In in fact, chapter 2, verse 24 was that pivotal verse where the teacher went from uh, giving us his uh, thesis abstract into then explaining the thesis and his, uh, his, his advice based on that on that idea, that concept. <clears throat> twenty Verse 24, chapter 2, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And then the last verse there, verse 26, basically explains or describes two choices that someone can make. And that's the point right there after discussing the fact that, exploring, declaring the fact that man is living a life below him, living a life not commensurate with who he is, as made in the image of God, that the writer of Ecclesiastes then says, the thing to do is accept what God has done and worship him and fear him. And then he gives the two choices in verse 26. Now, The fact that he says this in verse twenty-four, and by the way, verse twenty-four of chapter two is the first time God is mentioned. First, the first time the word God is is used, although it won't be the last. It's indicative; it is representative of the fact that the author is turning a corner and giving you what he really thinks. He's he's talking about um, how to think, how to uh, resolve in your in your heart, in your mind. Uh, the conundrum, the mystery of life. And the answer is simple let God be God. And in fact, what he'll do right after 26 is he will launch into a celebration of the sovereignty of God, which is what the first half of chapter 3 is. <clears throat> but back to chapter 9. And <clears throat> what are you saying here? What are you saying here in chapter 9, verse 7, when he says, go is he is saying for the seventh time. He'll say eight times altogether. But this is the seventh time that he's saying the same thing he said for the first time in verse 24 of chapter 2, and that is, be content. Be content. And the fact that he's saying go there is is why uh, I titled this section Cultivate Contentment. He's saying work at it. Just plain do it. Now, you may recall, as I just mentioned, that there are eight times that the teacher says this. And just as a reminder, uh, I'll list them again for you. But you can look these up uh, later on. And these are the places where he comes back and says, work at contentment, develop contentment, cultivate contentment, let yourself be content, because God is ready and waiting to make you content. All right, chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 7, which is where we are right now. And chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Eight times he comes back to that theme. This is why I mentioned early on that it's possible to call this book, this book of Ecclesiastes, a book that is a a sermon on contentment. Largely. Now, it's not the only thing. There's a few more layers there. But it's largely a sermon on the the idea of contentment. All right, so let's see what else he says. Verse 8, Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your life. And he goes on, he says, basically this is all you can do. What is he saying there? Well, look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. So, uh, dress nicely, put cologne on, uh, enjoy you know, life with your life partner, and as you do your work, and as you do the kind of thing that you stay busy with, hey, do it well. Do it to the best of your ability. Well, what's, what is this? Well, it is enjoy life. It's just plain enjoy life. Now, he's going to say three things in this section. We've already seen two of them. The first one in verse 7 is go. That's a repeat of 2.24. And that is just simply work and contentment. The second thing he's saying now is enjoy life. Enjoy life. We get that really from those three verses, 8, 9, and 10. And especially when you look at uh, verse 8, clothes be white and oil lacking on your not lacking on your head. This is saying, you know, wear nice clothes and, you know, don't don't think you have to you know, be frumpy or or you know, wear clothes that aren't very nice and You know, nothing wrong with having a little aftershave or cologne. He says, you know, enjoy life. Now, let's look at that word sheol in verse 10. He says, there's no activity or planning or wisdom in sheol where you're going. And we've pointed this out before. But do not substitute the word hell for sheol. That's not what that is. Uh, The Jews, the ancient Jews understood that. The modern Jews understand that. And we need to understand that that word is just you know the ancients even though there were faithful jews in the ancient times like david and, and others uh, even though there were faithful jews there were some many probably who who had trouble with the afterlife they didn't have a good concept of the afterlife and in fact some people will tell you i think they overstated but some people will tell you that Jews by and large did not believe in the afterlife. I don't think that's true. There were many who didn't, uh, but I think the faithful ones, the the ones who really loved God, understood all the Old Testament passages that mention the afterlife, and there are many. But but back to Sheol, what Sheol really just means is the grave. Most modern versions uh, put the grave there, and that's pretty accurate. To the Jews, Sheol was just blackness. You know, the switch is turned off, you know, the light switch is turned off. Blackness, end, death, gone, cut, that's all. That's it. And so, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not getting into uh, describing existentialism here or anything like that. We're just saying that was the common understanding of the end of life among ancient peoples. You die, and that's it. It's gone. But not faithful people, not people that knew God and loved God. They they knew that there was more than that. So just realize that this is not saying hell. This is not a theological term, sheol. All right? Okay, so the third thing, first thing he has said is, uh, you know, be content. Second thing he has said is enjoy life. And now the third thing starts at verse 9 and goes through 11. <clears throat> so verses 9, um, actually through 12. Um, let's see. No, I'm sorry. 11 through 11 through 13. I again saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, nor to- for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, moreover a man does not know his time. He is like fish caught in a treacherous net, or a bird trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared in evil time, when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom unto the sun, and it impressed me. Well, we'll we'll actually we'll focus on 11 and 12. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying, this is the third thing he's saying in this section, is that God runs life. Now, we'll focus on verse 11 for a little bit, and then look at 12. This is an interesting statement. In fact, verse 11 is one of the passages that early on I really gravitated to, I really took um into my heart and really loved, really liked and i've been um I've been asked why, and I'll tell you why, as you read that the race is not to the swift, the battle not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that God runs things, God runs things we we like to think. That hard work results in success, and hard work results in accolades, and recognition, and and achievement, and reward, and that's essentially true, and much as much of proverbs does uh, support that, but that doesn't mean necessarily it always happens that way, and that's what the writer is saying here. He's saying, you know. We like to think that people get what they work for, but not always. Sometimes success happens to the person you don't think really was shooting for success. The bottom line is God hands it out. God hands out success. Now, when we come to the end of that passage, nor favor men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Now, it sounds like the, the teacher has gone off the deep end. Wait a minute, teach. Now you're saying that it's serendipity, it's just luck, it's just chance, but I have three things to say about that. First of all, remember we made a case for the faith of this writer. Whoever he is, Solomon or somebody else, we made the case early on that this is a faithful man. He talks about the fear of God, he talks about having only one chance in life to choose the Lord and then in in death it's over. This is not a man who is unfaithful, but he is full of faith. The second so 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 just knowing that, would you would you assume then that he's gone from that to saying that everything is luck and everything is chance? No. No, you can't believe that. The second thing I will say is When we see things like this that sound like they're unfaithful statements, you have to remember he's writing to both believers and unbelievers. So he's accommodating the view of the common man. All right? So it's chance from that perspective. The third thing I will say is the idea of chance or arbitrariness or randomness is actually supported in Scripture. I don't know if you realize that. But it is. There's actually some statements in Scripture that are very interesting. For example, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 22, you'll find a battle <clears throat> being waged, and the king—I forget who, which one it is—I have a feeling it was Asa, but I don't remember which one. And uh, he decides to hide. He's, he's going into the battle with his army, and he decides to hide by dressing as a nor- as a regular a warrior, you know, in armor and all the rest, and he thinks that way he's going to not be a target as the king. And then it says, the passage says, this is 1 Kings 22, particularly in verse 34, where someone in the opposing army drew an arrow and launched it, and it says, randomly, randomly. He wasn't really aiming for anything, just shooting it into the opposing army into the Israeli army. <clears throat> and it says that that arrow hit that king who was thought he was disguising himself and went in between the pieces of armor and, and got him, killed him. And uh, I think killed him. Anyway, got him. And uh, here's the point. Scripture describes that as randomness. And yet, was it random? If you believe... In the only wise God and the only true God, you cannot believe in randomness. That's not random. And yet it's described as random. Here's another one. <clears throat> I don't have the passage for this, but if you look in the book of Ruth, you'll see that it's described there the same word Ruth chanced upon Boaz Field. Now, Different versions might have a different word there for chance, but the, but nonetheless, the idea is there that Ruth just happened to <coughs> be walking <coughs> onto Boaz's field, the field that was owned by Boaz, her future husband. Again, was that chance? You know, Christians don't believe that. Christians don't believe in luck or chance. Here's another one. <coughs> if you look in Proverbs, Chapter 16, and you see this also in Acts, um, there's mention of lots, and in many times in the Old Testament, actually, in the earlier books, particularly in the Pentateuch, you can see uh, the use of, uh, of lots, various kinds of lots, and in other words, uh, drawing straws and that sort of thing. <clears throat> and that was done in a very faithful way. It was done in a faithful way. And it says in Proverbs 16, uh, verse 33, that man does the lot, but God determines the outcome. God determines the outcome. So even if you insist on describing things as random, or by chance, or by serendipity, you still have to conclude that that's only from our perspective. From God's perspective, no. He runs it. And so forth. So this third thing is really saying this uh, chapter nine verses eleven through thirteen, is is, or through twelve really, is saying God runs life. It's that simple. God runs life. So there's three things under this heading of cultivate contentment, and that is God. uh, That is uh, verse seven. Go. Verses uh, eight through ten. Enjoy life. And then verses 11 and 12, uh, God runs life. So, cultivate contentment. Cultivate contentment is one of the things he's saying to do in the face of inequity, in the face of inhospitable environment, in the face of the really sorry human condition. And let's remind ourselves that sorry human condition was actually put in place by us, by man. We did that. We rebelled. And we got the consequences. But as Ecclesiastes points out, God then took that and made it into a project. He made it into into an apologetic. uh, So that he locked us into it, unable to be fixed, so that we would look to him and turn to him. All right. The next section is... uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 10. So let's do this in chunks. So nine, thirteen, And we'll read through, um, let's read through 18. So 13 to the end. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, And a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege-works against it. But there was also found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise, hurting quietness, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Now, actually, I'd like to stop at 17, and we'll uh, we'll pick up 18 in the next in the next section. Um, so 13 through 17. So <clears throat> this section I've entitled "A Minority with God is a Majority." A minority with God is a majority. So even though believers throughout world history have been in the minority, despite what some have said, some well-meaning people have said, they've always been a a minority. And as such, uh, and and, and remember the context of this book and the context of uh, these chapters, these recent chapters, how to live life in the face of inequity, and iniquity for that matter, Uh, unfairness and sin. how to, how to navigate life. And now he's saying it's especially hard because we're a minority. The people that fear God, the people that love God, who know Jesus Christ and have Jesus Christ, uh, are a minority. And so this is what he's saying through the, from the, the latter half of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. So we'll just take this first chunk, <clears throat> 13 through 17. And what he's saying here is, I think you can see it. When you read that, you can see what he's saying. He's saying wisdom is often quiet and unpopular and the minority. Real wisdom is often not very well appreciated. It's unpopular, it's quiet, and it's in the minority. And that um, is true. That is very, very true. These are just very, very uh, true statements. So let's read, <clears throat> let's read the next two verses, verses 18 and verse 1 and chapter 10, which I think go together. They should have really been put together in the, when someone divided these up. But verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. So he's still talking about minority, but now he's saying, yes, <clears throat> as he said earlier, minority is unpopular. And it is quiet, and it is it is you know it is the uh, it is the minority, but now he's saying the assumption though when you when you read that is it means we're not very impactful. You know, minority is not very impactive. It's not very um, um, it's not accepted. It's not liked. It's not valued, and so it tends to not be very. Uh, impactive in society. But then he says a minority can be impactive <clears throat> when it is evil. When it is evil. That's what he means by uh nine eighteen and ten one. He's saying sometimes a minority on the other hand, he says, he says, sometimes a minority can be can be influential and it can be impactive. But it's usually when it's evil. And you see what he's saying? He's being a little bit satirical. He's saying, you know, this is kind of strange, but it's, a, it's it's a truism. It's a truism of life. Okay? <clears throat> now the next section. He's um, going to go on, <clears throat> and let's start with uh, verse 3. And, uh, well, we'll just do verse 3. Uh, verse 3, Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. He's saying, he's saying here, the believer, the one who fears God, has difficulty in navigating this world even more because he actually is a citizen of two worlds. He lives in two worlds. And this is true. This is a New Testament concept, by the way. You find this described in Peter and in James. And in the Gospels, that we are a citizen, that we are, uh, this is not our home. This is a temporary place. And our true citizenship, as Paul would say, is in heaven. That's all he's saying when he talks about uh, this person who's wandering down the road. And um, it actually begins with verse 2. I'm sorry, I skipped that. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone he's a fool. It's, it's, we're living in two worlds, and you can observe this. It's observable. You can just watch people and see that. All right. Verse 4. Verse 4. We're going through verse 7. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses, and princes walking like slaves on the land. What's he talking about? He's talking about the powerful and the not-so-powerful, leaders and followers. And he's he's going to make a case here uh, a couple times in this passage, this section, which we've called a minority with God as majority, which is really just how to how to navigate, how to navigate. Um, he's saying leaders... Leaders are one of the things that trip us up. Leaders are one of the things that confuse us. Authority can be confusing. And he says... He's basically saying specifically that leaders require special handling. Yeah. And leaders are often not the people you think they should be. Whereas the people who... uh you know, should-be leaders aren't, you see. So, he says, uh, he says, verse 4, when the ruler's temper rises against you, he's saying, you know, when powerful men come against you, stand firm. And then in verses 5 through 7, he's saying, you know, it, it doesn't make you wise just because you have a title. Having a title doesn't make you a smart person, doesn't make you wise. He's talking about leaders, and he'll say more about leaders before we're done here. All right, and then 8 through 15, which is a long section, but let's go ahead. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who queries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he's not sharp in its edge, he must exert more strength, Wisdom has the advantage of giving uh, success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. And, and it goes on. It sounds like Murphy's Law, to, you know, to put it in the vernacular. In fact, I used to think that that was one of the best uh, ways of looking at this particular part. But that's not what's going on here. He's basically talking in 8 through 11, he's talking about horse sense. He's talking about common sense. And notice he brings this to the table while he's talking about leaders, do you see? He's saying, you know, sometimes the common person has more understanding than the leader does. And if you don't think that's true, <laughs> you, you do, you must. Do you remember the Dilbert com- comic strip? The Dilbert comic strip was based on that premise. Uh, it was about uh, computer software engineers who were constantly uh, bemoaning the fact that their 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 supervisors didn't have a clue. <laughs> they were clueless about what they what their work was all about. And that's uh, that's what the writer Ecclesiastes is saying: is that um, is that. Common sense, ordinary horse sense, is often lacking in leaders. Not always, not even most of the time, but it frequently enough that it is a challenge as you navigate this life, this world of woe. As you navigate this world, it is a difficulty, it is one of the, one of the many difficulties. Now when we go through 12 through 15, let's go ahead and do that. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, while the lips of, the, of a fool consume him. The beginning of talking is folly, the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen. Who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to his city. What's he saying? He's saying leaders not only lack common sense, they also waste words. Words. And you could even say words are wasted on them. Many times, now this is not a big diatribe against leadership, against authority, not not at all, but the the writer is saying one of the difficulties you'll have in navigating life is knowing how to handle authority, knowing how to deal, how to be under authority. And again, that's another New Testament concept. So he says leaders often uh, shouldn't be leaders you know some of them shouldn't really be but they are and by the way God put them there and that's another thing you'll find in the New Testament but they require special handling and they don't often have horse sense and they don't even talk properly the common person uses words more carefully and more productiv- productively than do some leaders that's what he's saying. He's bemoaning the fact. He's he's pointing it out and he's saying this is what you have to deal with as you go through life, all right? And then we'll go 16 to the end. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence the rafters sag and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Whoa, teacher, what are you saying? One more verse. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. So this is the fifth thing he sang under this category of a minority with God is a majority, the first one was uh, that a that wisdom is quiet and unpopular. Uh, the second one was uh, the believer lives in two worlds. The third one was leaders can require special handling. The fourth, common person, the common person has common sense. And now number five. He's basically saying here, powerful men are sometimes stupid. Yes. Powerful men are sometimes stupid." So that's 16 through 20. Um, Look what he says, 16. Uh, What's he talking about in 16 and 17 and 18 and 19? He's talking about partying. He's talking about being a hedonist. He's talking about living uh, for pleasure. You know, just party. Party down. And he's saying often, more often than should be, people in authority uh, use their authority to just live life up, live you know, live luxuriously and live in pleasure all the time. And that's why he says, "Woe to you, O land! And blessed are you, O land!" And then, through indolence, the rafters sag. In other words, in other words, they're not paying attention to the work they should be paying attention to. They're not paying attention to their responsibilities. And 19 is very interesting. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. It sounds like the teacher has slipped up again, doesn't it? Money's the answer to everything? That's not a faithful statement. That's not a Christian thing to believe. Not at all. But that's not what he's saying. I found that the NLT, the New Living Translation, Actually, does a good job right here in rendering this, and what it basically says is, and it is, the, and I think this is the the best uh, the best meaning, is that authority leaders, many leaders, not all, not most, but many leaders, live it up, party down, and all they all they think about. Look what it says: prepare a meal for enjoyment. Hey, let's pig out. Wine makes life merry. Hey, let's get the booze. And money is the answer. Now the word answer is the key There is the answer to everything. Well, what's everything? It's partying. And the NLT gets this right. The NLT says, eat it up, drink it up, and there's money so that we can do more eating up and drinking up. <laughs> the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is saying that one of the difficulties in understanding leaders is that some of them, more than, you know, more than should be, live just for their appetites. Live just for their... They they use their authority and use their position and use their power just to indulge themselves. Does that make sense? Just to indulge themselves. To the point that even money... Even their resources, even their power, even their uh, access to anything they need, they use just to fulfill themselves. And isn't that true? I've observed that. I've known uh, bosses, who, you know, managers, who managed really just to promote themselves. That's all they were about, was to promote themselves. Not the people under them, not to get the best out of the of the people under them, not to celebrate and reward the people who do things under them, but really to promote and advance themselves and that's that's another little kind of a little um, nuance to this thing he's saying uh, you know powerful men are often stupid, you have to be careful uh, they're consumed with themselves, they're consumed with themselves. Now verse twenty. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Does this sound like a common Western saying that we have? Uh, An axiom or or a saying that we have? It is. It does. And this is where it came from. A little bird told me. This is where it came from. There's another one in uh, verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, he must exert more strength. What does that sound like? Work smart, not hard. You bet. You bet. How about uh, verse 1? Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. What does that sound like? Sure. Um, fly on the ointment. That's also in, the, in our Western uh, lexicon. There's actually several more of these in, in the Bible. In fact, there's about uh, 60 to 70 sayings in Scripture uh, that actually are the origin of, of what we know today in Western society as as little pithy sayings actually originated here in this in this book the Bible. But back to verse 20 what's he saying there? Well remember the context. The context is how to deal with authority. So verse 20 in your bedchamber do not curse a king, there he is, there's the authority, And in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, more, than, more or less the same thing. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound of the wind creature. Will He's saying, be careful, even out, out of the hearing of the authority, even away from the authority in your own home, be careful what you say, because it'll get back to them. You'll get back to them. You could say, you could say that leaders have informers. You could say, and you know this is true, you know that there's a, there's an example of this in Scripture, where David. Oh, how does this go now? David is uh, David is um, turned against by a young man. I don't remember the names or, or the passage, but David, uh, the uh, uh, soon-to-be king David, he's not king yet, is turned against, uh, given up betrayed by uh, a man named Doeg who knows where he is and he goes to Saul, King Saul, and tells him uh, where he is and who has been helping him. And the people that have been helping David uh, in this particular instance are some priests. And what does Saul do? Saul has the priests killed. So you see there's an example. It's uh, not the best one, but it is one in Scripture of, you know, uh, you've got to be very, very careful around authority to make sure you don't give them any reason. Don't give them any reason to, uh, not even not even your, in the quiet of your home and the security of your home, don't give them any reason to uh, turn against you. He's given us that advice. All right, so that's... Uh, that's uh, uh, advice number eight and advice number nine. Number eight is cultivate uh, contentment. Number nine is a minority with God as a majority. Next time we get to the very last piece of advice, number ten, which will be seize the day. Or as we know today, we say carpe diem, don't we? Carpe diem. Um, seize the day. And he's basically going to s- uh, spend, the author of Ecclesiastes, is going to spend some time talking about essentially the reason it's being called seize the day is because the author is essentially saying, you know, you have limited time and limited opportunity, focus on this in your as you get older, you know. He he I think he will actually say before you get older, but as you get older, realize there's not much time left. Um, do the things you really should be doing to so that you are making a difference, and of course, making a difference for the Lord. Um, and we'll see uh, what he says there. One, for example, one of the things he's going to say is, "You should make an effort to be generous and 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 to be giving before you die, before before you get old so old that the next thing on your calendar is uh, your funeral." Uh, you know focus on on being generous so that's one of the things he's going to say another one he's going to another thing he's going to say is um to um uh live in the moment live in the moment in terms of he's going to say things like bask in the sun while you can you know enjoy the feeling of the sun on your back and just lift up gratitude to God in in that feeling. So that's another thing he's <clears throat> that's another thing he's, he's going to say. And then <clears throat> uh the, a third thing, the third thing he'll say in this section is that he describes aging in the last section, the last the last piece. He's going to say that aging itself is a lesson. Aging itself brings us a lesson. And uh Although it has very sad, very poignant uh, aspects to it, aging does, obviously, uh, it it, it is still in and of itself uh, a lesson, and that lesson is make your life count for God, and don't wait until the end of your life where, you know, um, you have done, okay, you can believe and you can have faith and you can give your life to Jesus. But if you do it on your deathbed, what have you done with your life? What have you done with your life? Uh, and that's kind of a sad commentary. All right, thank you, thank you for uh, uh, coming along with me on this journey. We're getting close to the end, just a couple of lessons left. Uh, and um, I hope that A... You're seeing that this book of Ecclesiastes is not mysterious, and it's not negative, And B, that even though the gospel is somewhat veiled in this book, it's not very clear, uh, as with every book of the Bible, Jesus is the subject. And that you will um, consider that, and consider him. So until next time, believe God.